Shalom again. It's Reverend John Ferret, and we are in, again, the series, The Gospel According to Moses on the Book of Exodus. And we're in Lesson 34, and this is the third part of a series of lessons that have everything to do with Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Three lessons on these 14 verses, and it's got everything to do with God establishing the laws of Passover. And remember, this is before Plague 10. Moses had already warned Pharaoh about this. The plague has not happened, and all of a sudden, God inspires Moses to put this in. God wants the laws of Passover established first. It's almost as if God wants his people to do this ritual to show that the Hebrews are turning back to him. It's more than freedom, but freedom to love and serve the Lord. And later on, when we get to Deuteronomy, whenever that might be, we'll talk about the Shema, where it talks about the commandments, the commandments of God, all of them to love and serve the Lord God. So we're seeing some amazing things, like the firstborn of Amun-Ra will also be judged on the night of Passover. Kansu, because he's the moon god. And on that night, the 15th of Nisan, it will be a full moon. And there's more. And I, I'm telling you, for me especially, I never, I will never look at Passover the same. As we look at it, it was he studied in its, its historical context. Our understanding expands and it enriches. And, I, and, and it takes us all the way to Jesus' Passover, the Passover of Messiah. And we see his Passover in a new light, in a deeper and a more expanded idea. So come, let's return. And let's see more that we have never seen before. Now, without reading the first six verses, we'll just get to Exodus 12, verse 6, where it says, You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, the month of Nisan, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now, some of your Bibles might say, at between the evening, NASB is at twilight. And what is that? Now, there's a lot of views and uh, I have had interesting discussions with people that uh, I knew and uh, came in contact with because of my classes. And they had a lot of different views and opinions, and it was very interesting. All those people I debated with, all those people I've argued with about what Twilight is, they never were able to show me their historical references. So I turn to uh, Rabbi Joseph Hertz, and in Judaism of today, he's recognized as a great, awesome scholar of the Torah. He was the head rabbi in Great Britain, basically around the turn of the century. And so when I go to his Torah commentary on 12.6, Rabbi Hertz says, it's better to say it towards evening. 
And he says, literally, the Hebrew is between the two evenings. And here we go at the Talmud. Now, the Talmud itself was commentary that the rabbis put together. The entire Talmud was completed, ah, let's call it about roughly about 500 AD. And in there, we talk about the Talmud, the rabbis saying that the first evening, from their perspective, is the time in the afternoon when the heat of the sun begins to decrease, about 3 o'clock. The second evening commences with sunset. So here we have rabbis, and they practice this for thousands of years. And they're saying when the heat decreases, this is the first evening, the second evening is going to be at sunset. Josephus, he relates this in his own works. And he said that the Passover sacrifice, that this is would have been in Jesus' day, was offered from the ninth to the eleventh hour. In other words, between 3 and 5 p.m. So we have historical references, ladies and gentlemen. Historical references from the Talmud and also Josephus. In the JPS Torah commentary by Nahum Sarda, he talks about Rabbi Radach from 1160 to 1235 A.D. And Rabbi Radach, he said, the sun passes its zenith during the day. So, in other words, it gets to the highest point during the day and it starts coming down. He said, that's the first setting. And he said, finally, the second setting or the second evening is finally when the sun is under the horizon. So, indeed, when we look at these things, we can now go back to rabbinic sources. We can go back to historical sources like Josephus and so on, Rabbi Radak and begin to see that there is solid evidence that indeed that between the evenings is sometime in the afternoon all the way to the second evening which is going to be at sunset and again when you're possibly talking with people and arguing with people and having discussions remember the historical sources are key they're so so important so getting back to the uh, chapter, Exodus 12, let's start reading in verse 7, and let's go through 14. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled, at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the hand of Egypt. So we talk about in verse 7, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Now, what's really amazing 
is I was in Egypt on a research study trip with my wife, Robin. And we were at an archaeological site called Dier el Medina. And this is a village of the workers who actually worked on the tombs of the pharaohs in the Valley of the Kings. And so this is on the west side of the Nile, across from the ancient, uh, ancient city, the modern city of Luxor. Now what was fascinating is, there is a sign, a big sign, done by the archaeologists that describe the houses, way the houses were built, the way they were structured, how many rooms, uh, what cer certain rooms were used for, and then they talked about a fascinating part of daily life in Egypt. The ancient Egyptians, and this is in the 18th century, or the 18th dynasty, in 1446 BC, the Egyptians painted their doorposts red. Why red? It could very well be that red has multiple meanings in the Egyptian culture of those days. But one of the things that it means is the blood of Isis. And the blood of Isis protects from evil demons. This was discovered by, by, by the archaeologist, the Egyptologist at this archaeological site, Dier al Medina. The reference, and it's referenced in the book, The Village Life of Ancient Egypt by A.G. McDowell. He's an Egyptologist at Oxford. I, I was blown away at this, and this was verified by an associate of mine, Dr. Paul Wright, who's the president of Jerusalem University College in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, for more on this, you can email me, and I can send you a chapter from one of my class books. And the, the, the chapter, I've entitled it now as an article, and it's called Unleavened Bread and Messiah. And in there, I go into this archaeological discovery in more depth that Egyptians in the days of the Exodus painted their lintels and their doorposts red to protect from evil. Now recall, we talked about the fact that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. They bought into the pagan religion of the Egyptians. The Bible really seems to indicate that. And so again, this is in Lesson 4, Part 2, in this series, the Gospel according to Moses, according to uh, the book of, Egypt, uh, the book of uh, Exodus. So with regards to that, I have a link in this lesson. If you go to Part 3, here in Lesson 33, and you look in the description below the picture, I will have that link to Lesson 4. I think it's actually, it is so critical that we begin to understand this assimilation. It's so important for so many things that we're going to do as we go through the book of Exodus. So indeed, even Moses shows us this in Deuteronomy 32, 17, where he talks about the fact that he said, God has told me that indeed our fathers had turned away from him to gods that they didn't know they were demons so 
they were absorbed into the culture and the Hebrews may also have painted their Torah posts to red to be protected from demons. But now God is saying, you're going to protect your house. You're going to protect your family. Your firstborn of your family. Because I am coming and I will destroy all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And for you, if your doorposts and lintel are not painted red, not with paint, but with the blood of a ram. In other words, slay and slaughter Amun-Ra and put his blood on the doorposts and the lintel so that you will be spared for my wrath. This is so amazing. It's so amazing because, ladies and gentlemen, this is real. It's not my opinion. God seems to be saying over and over again, show me. Show me that you have turned from the gods of Egypt. Show me that you trust me to protect you. And they need to remember also that sacrificing a lamb, a male lamb, is punishable by death in Egypt. This is just amazing. And it could very well be that the Hebrews were practicing daily practices like their fellow Egyptians or the Egyptians, their neighbors, and so on. And they were painting their doorposts and lintels red with paint. But now they will do it with the blood of Amun-Ra. So it's what God did in the sense that He's using what they possibly knew. But now Adonai is turning it against the Egyptian gods. And he also used it for the sign, a sign for the Hebrews. A sign that they have proof that they have turned back to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. But when we think, again, about the sacrifice of Yeshua, the Lamb of God, the Ram of God. We talked about this in the previous lesson, Lesson 32. His blood flowed unto the wood of the cross. This is a sign to us that we accept Jesus as Lord, as God, and we are set free from our bondage. So the Hebrews put the blood of the Lamb on the wood. And then 3,000 some years later actually about 1,500 years later Jesus' blood was also on the wood one on the doorpost of the house and the other on the cross and there's some other things to consider here in Egypt for the Hebrews the head of the family the father probably, is the one that not only picked the lamb, but once the lamb was slain, would actually take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel, put it on the wood. And so too, our Father, our God, put the blood of his lamb on the wood, the blood of the Lamb of God on the cross. You just can't dismiss these amazing connections. They're not made up. 
they're right in front of us. But we've missed so much. Not the fact that the church, the, the traditional Sunday church, has abandoned its Jewish roots. No, but its biblical history. The fact that the Egyptians painted their doorposts red and their lintels red to protect from evil. That's an Egyptian history. That's an Egyptian archaeology. So the issue is bigger than just reconnecting to the Jewish roots. The issue is studying the Bible in its historical context. Then we take a look at uh, Exodus 12, verses 8 through 10. And the issue is the lamb had to be roasted. We understand why. The Torah is silent on this. And so there's some interesting views on this. And one of them happens to be from Umberto Casuto, another recognized, um, brilliant Torah scholar. His, uh, he lived in 1883 to 1951. And again, I thank Dennis Prager for referencing Umberto Casuto uh, because I'm getting it from Dennis and he actually was getting this information from Kosudo and passing it on to us. So thank you, Dennis, again. And Umberto Kosudo said that in the ancient pagan cultures, and this is true, animals were eaten sometimes in their pagan rituals raw. This was part of the pagan culture. They ate animals as if they were animals. So Kasuto may be onto something. Could it be that God is about to take his people to the promised land? He's, he's going to take his people into Canaanite territory? And they're going to be a witness? A witness that, no, men and women are made in the image of God and they're not animals and they don't eat animals raw like animals eat each other raw. Lifting up all people above animals. And it's a very interesting, very interesting possibility. Also, it talks about unleavened bread. Now, once again, let us remember, there's one purpose of the Exodus, and it's not just freedom, but it's freedom in order to be Yahweh's people the Lord's people, to serve Yahweh and to love him. These rituals for Passover happen once and only once in Egypt. All the other Passovers, when Jewish people celebrate Passover here in, the, in these days, all it is is a remembrance. It's a celebration. That's it. It's not the Passover. The Passover only happened in 1446 B.C. It was the month of Passover. It was God's New Year. He establishes the entire biblical calendar forever because of this event. God is saying, you guys, this is a big deal. So these rituals are definitely to separate the Hebrews from Egypt in a dramatic way. Remember, we talked about this 
that they had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And so God is trying to separate them from those rituals by establishing rituals and practices that go against Egypt. That's called a polemic. So they're going to be killing a male lamb, which symbolizes Amun-Ra, separating the Hebrews from the gods they came to worship. And again, they worship gods that are actually demons in Deuteronomy 32, 17. Or to know the firstborn will be executed on the 15th of Nisan, the night of the 15th of Nisan. Remember, the sun sets on the 14th day of the month at sundown. At sundown begins the new day, which will be the 15th. Night comes, and there's a full moon, because the 15th of every lunar month is always the full moon. And so since we have the full moon on the 15th, full moon, the moon was a god in Egypt, Kansu. And Kansu was the only beloved son of Amun-Ra and his mother Mut. He was the firstborn of the head god of Egypt. And Mut is the mother goddess of all Egypt, the sacred trinity, as they say. Amun-Ra, Mut, his wife, and Kansu. And the sacred trinity could not stop this awesome and terrible plague. All the firstborn over the entire land of Egypt would be killed. It's as if Kansu, the firstborn of Amun-Ra, was killed on the night of his glory when he was shown the brightest and the fullest. So again, God is using what the Hebrews probably knew, Egypt, its culture, religion, to separate his people and bring them back. So what about unleavened bread? Now in the rabbinic tradition, uh, and really in the church, we talk about leaven re represents impurity and sin. And in some cases it does, but it goes bigger than that. And we're going to see that now and also in the, in the next lesson, in Lesson 35. And definitely unleavened bread is quick and easy to make. It's the bread of haste. So he said they're using unleavened bread because they got to get out of town quick. Oh no, there's more. The Hebrews would get it. We don't. Because it is clear from archaeological, archaeological findings from the work of amazing Egyptologists, Christian and non-Christian, that the Egyptians likely invented the leavening of bread. They invented beer. And probably from this, scholars suggest that they discovered the leavening of bread. For the Hebrews then, in 1446 B.C., God is teaching He's painting a picture for them, then and, and, and not us. Hebrews had assimilated into that Egyptian culture. And again, take a look at that link. Listen to that lesson. Lesson 4, part 2. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. We remember that in the story of Joseph. During the days of Jesus... Roughly a hundred barges of wheat left Alexandria every day for Rome. 
a hundred barges to feed Rome. Rome went to Egypt for its bread. The great god Osiris, he is said to die and be resurrected every year, and he is resurrected annually at the end of the flood. And they have pictures of his hieroglyphics on the walls of the temples where they see we see Osiris in his tomb. And as a mummy, we see wheat growing out of him, just as the wheat is now about to grow and come forth in Egypt. His, his wife, Isis, is said to be the source of the bread for eternal life. And the Hebrews had bought into this. The religion and the worldview and the gods of Egypt were the leaven. So Adonai says, do not eat Egyptian bread anymore. Do not eat leavened bread. It's time to separate yourself from Egypt. It wasn't the bread, but it was the bread that that was represented the gods of Egypt. He's teaching to separate from the leaven, the ungodly, seemingly religion and culture of Egypt. The unleavened bread is a picture for the Hebrews to turn against Egypt, its wealth, its power, its abundance, and its gods. And again, you can email me for that article, Unleavened Bread and Messiah, which goes into this even more. And my email address is lom.ministries at gmail.com. lom.ministries at gmail.com. Email me and I'll be glad to send you that article for your further study. So once again, you guys, for me, all this just blew me away. No Gentile messianic leaders that I'm aware of teach this. They mostly focus in on rabbinic midrash, rabbinic views and opinions. They argue with no knowledge at all. And basically they say that if the rabbis say it, it must be true. No way. No Sunday church leaders or teachers teach this. For the most part, the teaching the Bible in its historical context is not even on the radar. And probably the major reason is it's not even taught in seminaries anymore. But I said, as I delved into the studies for my master's degree in Bible history and the Jewish roots of our faith, these truths, these facts became evident. I saw the I saw these amazing connections, I couldn't believe it. It enriched and expanded my understanding of God's Word. Just, just amazing. So we'll go to verse 11. And we read an interesting phrase in verse 11. The Lord's Passover in English. Now the Hebrew word here is Pesach. Pesach. The Strong's number is 6453. The Peh is in short E sound as in bed. Peh, Pesach. This is important. And basically, when you go into the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, and by the way, I wanted to thank again Dennis Prager for inspiring me to teach this because, again, this was something brand new. He knows the Hebrew. I don't. 
And so when he said, when you take a look at this Hebrew word, the Lord's Passover, the Lord's Pesach, it means sparing somebody. It means that somebody has immunity from something. In other words, it's a protection. It's a shield. It does not mean pass over or go over. This is exactly the Hebrew meaning of Pesach. So Yahweh's ritual that happens, the Lord's Pesach, means that once and only once, the Hebrews are going to be immune and protected and shielded from the coming 10th plague and that awesome hammer of God that is about to fall on all, all in Egypt. Now, when we go from verse 11 to verse 13, in verse 13 we read the phrase, I will pass over you. And you say, wait a minute. Here we have the Lord's Passover, and now we have the phrase, I will pass over you. And in verse 13, we have two words. Al, which is the Strong's number 5921, means over. And now we have another Hebrew word, pa-sach. And this is the Hebrew, uh, or the Strong's number 6452. Pa-sach. So the A sound is as, as in papa, means to hop to jump, to jump over. Pasach. Now, we have two separate Hebrew words. In verse 11, we've got the Hebrew word Pesach, which is immunity, protection, or a shield. And now here in verse 13, we have Pasach, which is means to jump over or go over. So a better way of understanding the difference is is this God will once and only only once provide his pesach, his immunity, protection, and shield on that night, the 15th of Nisan, he will pasach, hop or jump or skip al your house. God will provide his protection or immunity for all the Hebrews on that night. Since he is going to hop, jump, pasach over Al, your house. The English word for Passover in the 21st century comes from Pasach, jump, hop, skip. Now this understanding is critical. In verse 11, it's Yahweh's Pesach. It's not the lamb, it's not the blood. It's the whole process, and the process is to attain the protection and shelter and immunity of God. And this is so critical to understand the difference of Pesach and Pasach. Pasach is, you might say, the celebration that the Jewish people do every year. In other words, God passed over their house, he skipped over their house, he hopped over their house. But there is Pesach. And this is related to Jesus. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, in the New American Standard, we read, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, 
just as you are in fact unleavened. I, I find that interesting because here Paul, he really understands that the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt and they had to separate themselves from the Egyptian religion, the Egyptian culture. They had to be unleavened. They had to take the leaven out of Egypt out of them. And it said, to finish that verse, it says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So again, we talk about Paul alluding to the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, the old leaven. And indeed, this is going to be a representative for Paul of our sinful nature and other things. And Messiah is our Passover. Now, this verse in some Bible versions say that Jesus is our Passover lamb. You guys, that's a terrible mistranslation. It's not even in the original Greek. Never was. It was added by translators in some translations of the Bible to push their mistaken views because they didn't understand the difference between the two Hebrew words. Remember the two Hebrew words. Pesach, the Lord's Pesach, his protection, his immunity, his shelter, and Pasach. Pasach is to jump over. And I find this interesting. I have found a number of so-called Christian scholars who still argue that even though there's a couple of translations that do not say, like the King James, that it's just the Lord's Passover or Christ is our uh, Passover and it doesn't say Passover lamb. No, it means Passover lamb. That's what it means. It, it can't, especially as we continue. Let me show you. So Jesus is not the Passover lamb. That's a terrible mistranslation. It's another example of lack of real scholarship. The Greek word here for Christ is our Passover, the Greek word there is Pascha. And the Strong's number is 3957. So when you go into the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and in the Septuagint, you go to Exodus 12.11. And Exodus 12.11 talked about the Lord's Passover, the Lord's Pesach, the Lord's protection, his shelter, his immunity. That's the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint in Exodus 12, verse 11, Pascha. And Pascha, therefore, is connected to Pesach. And that is a Strong's number 6453. So Exodus 12:11 in Hebrew gives us the meaning of 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In Exodus 12, 11, we talked about the Lord's protection in immunity and shield. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we have Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. The Christ is our Pascha, but in Hebrew, the Christ is our Pesach. He's our immunity. He's our shield from eternal damnation and God's wrath, as Paul talks about it in Romans 5, 9. Of course he is. This verifies other scripture. There's two Passovers, ladies and gentlemen, not one. In Exodus 12, 11, there's the Lord's Passover. It's only for the Hebrews. It's only in 1446 B.C. and only happens once. 
on a specific chosen planned time in 1446 BC on the 15th of Nisan by Adonai. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 5-7. Christ is our Passover for all. He's our immunity. He's our shield. It's through the cross. It's through him that we are protected from God's wrath. But it's on a different and chosen planned time. It's probably 30 AD on the 15th of Nisan by Adonai. So we have the last over, the last supper, the Passover meal of the Messiah and the Jewish Seder, the Passover meal of Moses. It seems as if they must be separated and unique. The first, Pesach, we have immunity and protection of the seed of Abraham so that the covenant with Abraham can be fulfilled. The last, Pesach, comes through the seed of Abraham, a Jew, Jesus, a descendant of Abraham. He is the blessing for all, according to Genesis 12, 3, for Jew and Gentile. For me, I now do my Seder night. I do it the night before the Jewish Seder. As a true disciple of Rabbi Jesus, I want to do things just like he did. That's what a disciple is. They want to be like the rabbi. As one saved by the blood of the Ram of God, the Lamb of God, I want to remember not my deliverance out of Egypt. I want to remember my deliverance and the shelter and the protection that I have through Christ because of the sacrifice on the cross from the wrath of God and that I would be cleansed to be able to be saved and be God's son forever. Christ is my Pesach. So we come to verse 14. And in verse 14, we read, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. God has taught his people and us Torah. Here God makes a bunch of laws. He doesn't make up Torah. Torah means teaching. He's teaching them the laws. There are laws and there's teaching. Teaching is Torah. And then there are laws. Torah does not mean law. It's going to be number one, a day to remember. And number two, you will celebrate it on this day. Number three, it'll be a chag. A feasting, a dancing, a, a solemn holiday. And number four, you'll do it forever. It's a permanent ordinance. And once again, I'm indebted to Dennis Prager and his amazing commentary on the Torah. It's an amazing commentary on the book of Exodus, Exodus, the rational Bible. And he talks about the central importance of remembering. He said, the Torah, and I know this, and I know you know this as well. 
How many times do we talk? And God remembered his covenant with Noah, or God remembered this, or God remembered that. And it, but then he says, also, you're to remember this, the eight, the eight feasts in Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the Lord. All of them are to remember something. Even on Shabbat, you're to you're to remember on this the Sabbath. So why is remembering so important? Dennis Prager has at least nine reasons. Remembering endows history with meaning and significance. Remembering enables us to learn from history. Remembering leads to wisdom. Remembering makes the moral progress of civilization possible. Remembering links us with those who came before us and reminds us we are part of an ongoing people and or ideal. Remembering ensures that those who have suffered and perished are not forgotten. Remembering ensures that evil is not forgotten and allowed to disappear into the ash heap of history. Remembering is the only way to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. Remembering, by ensuring that goodness and good people are not forgotten, makes enduring gratitude possible. Without remembrance, there is no way to stay grateful. Remember and do a chag, a celebration. This entire lesson, here in 34 and 33 and 32, it really shows the importance of Passover in Egypt. But this is the one and only single event in Egypt in 1446 BC and the 15th of, of Nisan. And all Passovers after that are to remember. That's all they are. And from that one Passover in 1446 BC, it's so much of a big deal that it fixes the calendar, the lunar biblical calendar forever. Its purpose is unique. It's special by the very words of God. It's only for the Hebrews. We're going to see this a little bit later on. But God's redemption plan doesn't end here. There's a final redemption. Even Jews who do not believe in Jesus believe in the final redemption of the coming of the Messiah. The final redemption through the final redeemer, the Messiah. In Messiah, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. All nations will be blessed. In Genesis 12, 3, will be grafted in. I taught this in Lesson 25 in Genesis. The Hebrew there has an equivalent way of meaning or equivalent meaning only in that verse. Yes, all families of the earth will be blessed, but the way the Hebrew is structured can also mean that all of the families of the earth will be grafted in. That's exactly what Paul's teaching. He, I think Paul knew this. And all of this for us Christians, this happens because of the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb of God. So there's a second day to remember. There's a second day to have a solemn assembly. It's the night of the Last Supper. It's the night of the Passover meal of the Messiah. It's a special time to celebrate, unique, separate, different, and different from the Jewish celebration. I find it also interesting that we say our calendar is, had been forever changed. 
Have you ever noticed? From B.C. to A.D.? From before Christ to Annas Domini, the year of the Lord? The cross changes time forever. The cross is a huge deal. But these Passovers are so intimately related. You can't have the Passover of the Messiah without the Passover of Moses, without the Passover of Exodus. So, Christians, perhaps we should practice doing two satyrs in the season of Passover. So I will see you in the next lesson. Shalom.